Today's episode of What If Discussed is brought to you by Policy Genius. So, Pete, how are you feeling today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You seem surprised that I'm asking you how you're doing. It's just an odd way to start. Not know you say it every week, but it, it seemed like you were putting me on the spot for some reason. Well, I mean, in this case, I was actually concerned. I am concerned with how you're doing, but more in the context of energy. How are you feeling energetically? Uh, well, I mean, here we're sitting in August of 2020 and uh, just a Hope is this the tail end of the pandemic? Really? I don't know. Uh, I think like a lot of people who are working from home, not everybody's working from mm -hmm. home, but I am. A lot of people are taxed. They're uh, they're they've expended a lot of their energy. They're low. And I mean, yeah. I think most people would answer the question the same way. Most people feel they don't have enough energy. They could use more energy because at the end, we're all energy, including our planet. Okay, now I see where you're going with this. You're, you're talking about, and because of probably the uh, the topic of today's show, everything is energy. Everything is energy, and in this case, how planets are sort of categorized according to the Kardashev scale, which is something we'll get into later, there are type one, type two, type three civilizations, and it's according to how much energy they can harness from, in this case, type two, that you can harness from the sun. I, we have done a few Kardashev scale-like videos on uh, What If, um, and I don't recall, are we a type one? Well, bad news. We're not a type one yet. We're actually type zero, which is not something that depressing. is... Yeah, it feels depressing, <laughs> but we have nowhere to go but up, Okay, which is another way yeah. to look at it. It's kind of like type two would be more like solar power on steroids. Okay, solar power on steroids. So it's like the sun... But we're getting all of our power from the sun. We're able to harness all that power from the sun which and, are, and which, store it, too. Yes, right? and store it, which, as you can imagine, would allow us to do a whole bunch of things, not things that I would necessarily understand, nor did I really understand this prior to probably hours ago. But that's why we have guests on the show, because we want people to be able to come on and explain some of these complicated topics, like what if... Earth became a type two civilization. And in this case, we're lucky enough to have somebody who's a bit of an expert on the subject and who we've also had on the show before. Yeah, we have. It's uh, Professor Michio Kaku, who's extremely uh, smart and well-respected and, and followed by a lot of people. And really one of the people who are most cited and quoted when you're talking about today's what if, what if the Earth became a type two civilization? Michio Kaku is known as a futurist a great communicator, and a popularizer of science. He first graduated summa cum laude from Harvard University in 1968 and received his PhD from Berkeley in 1972. Kaku has expertise in several fields, such as hadronic physics, supersymmetry, supergravity, superstring theory, and super quantum, no, not super quantum physics, just quantum physics. He's also quite the media maven with multiple best-selling books to his name, including his most recent, The Future of Humanity. He also hosts two radio shows and appears regularly in television series exploring space, physics, and the future. He's currently the City College of New York's Henry Seamat Professor of Theoretical Physics, where he's been teaching for 35 years. Professor Kaku, welcome back to What If Discussed. Glad to be on the show. 
And we're always glad to have you. And yeah, for sure. as Peter and I talked about off the top, it's, it's a complicated subject, this type one, type two civilizations, if you don't know the Kardashev scale. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I think we did our best to try to understand it and explain it. But this is why you're here, because obviously this is something that you're considered uh, one of the experts on this planet. So first of all, please clarify, what is the Kardashev scale and what is a type one, type two, type three civilization? Well, we physicists are tired of talking about flying saucers and little green men and speculating about life in space. I'm a physicist. We use energy. Energy to rank civilizations in outer space. A type one civilization is planetary. They consume all the energy that they receive from the sun. For example, they control the weather. A type two is stellar. They control all the energy output of the mother sun, sort of like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. They've colonized a few of the neighboring planets, neighboring star systems, but not much more. Then there's type three. Type three is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They can harness the energy of 100 billion stars in the galaxy, sort of like uh, Star Wars. Star Wars would be an example of a type three galactic civilization. Now, what are we? Do we play with the weather, play with volcanoes and play with earthquakes? Do we play with the sun? Do we play with black holes throughout the galaxy? No, we are type zero. Mm. We don't even mm. rate on this scale. <laughs> we get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. But we are about 100 years away from attaining type one status. For example, the internet. What is the internet? It is the first type one telephone system to be unleashed in this century. Hmm. What language will this type one civilization speak? Well, already English and Mandarin Chinese are the two greatest languages on the internet. And what is the European Union? What is NAFTA? What are all these trade blocks? The beginning of a primitive type one planetary economy. Now, if you keep this scale up, at what point will we attain type two status? That is, leave this solar system and start to explore the nearby stars. Well, you just take out a slide rule or a calculator. You can calculate sure. that in just a few thousand years, we will be type two, like Captain Kirk. Now, Captain Kirk lives in the 23rd century. So that's about right. Uh, a little early, but still well on the scale that Nikolai Kardashev formulated in the 1960s. Then you hit type three in about 100,000 years. Wow. And why is that? Because that's the energy that you attain, the Planck energy. The Planck energy is the energy of space-time. It's when space becomes unstable, wormholes develop, black holes, gateway, hyperspatial gateways through space and time. That's the Planck energy. The Planck energy is a quadrillion times more powerful than the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. And why do I mention that? Because once you attain the Planck energy, wormholes, maybe even time travel is a possibility. Wow. Um, let's bring it back down to earth and, uh, and uh, talk about type two. I, I was asking off the top whether a type two civilization was 
simply like solar power on steroids. <laughs> yes. Now, I know you're not going to quote me in your next book uh, as a genius insight, <laughs> yeah. but uh, how close is that idea to, to uh, what type 2 means? Well, type 2 does not mean simply getting sunlight from the sun. It means playing with the sun itself. Hmm. For hmm. example, a Dyson sphere would envelop the entire sun with a sphere to absorb 100% of the energy output of a star. That's a Dyson sphere. And astronomers think that, well, we're not sure, but we may have the signals from some potential candidates of being a type two civilization in outer space. There's a star called Tabby star, which drops in intensity by about 25%. Some people think that maybe a gigantic Jupiter-sized planet moves in front of the star, absorbing all its energy, and perhaps that is a Dyson sphere in outer space. But again, a type two civilization would be like Star Trek. The Federation of Planets, they've colonized a small quadrant of the galaxy, would be a type two civilization. So type two, again, obviously is, you know, in layman's terms, we're, we're harnessing the full power, the full energy of our sun, our star in this case. That's right. The entire energy output of the sun. Oh, by the way, as a footnote, I forgot to mention that there's some speculation that there could be type four. Now, I gave a talk once where a little boy came up to me and said, Professor, you're wrong. There must be type four. And I said, well, that's crazy. There are planets, stars, and galaxies. That's it, folks. Stars, planets, stars, and galaxies. Therefore, type one, type two, type three. However, he insisted that there is an energy source beyond type three. I would agree. Now, if you're a fan of Star Trek, you know who lives in the continuum. Is it Q? The Q would be an example of type four, extra galactic. And we have a candidate now for extra galactic type four energy, and that's dark energy. Dark energy is beyond the galaxy itself. It is the energy of the expansion of the universe, dark energy. And who knows? Anyone who can harness that energy would be type four. In other words, a god. And Q is sort of a god if you walk ne- next generation. So Gene Roddenberry basically is is. I'd like to know who was feeding him information. Yeah. That's a story for another what if. Um, energy is something that we. I don't know. It. I don't mean we don't talk about energy because we talk about energy. But as important as energy is to our day to day lives and our functions, be in on this planet survival, but even beyond, you'd think we'd have even more focus. I, I think we take it for granted. Obviously, you just walk into a room, turn on a light switch, etc. But as you said earlier, we, we still are at a, a pretty primitive level of harnessing energy, which is, again, fossil fuels. How important is it that we, let's say, fast forward our harnessing of solar power to not only get to type two civilization one day, but to expedite the evolution of this species? Well, let's take a look at it historically. Throughout most of human history, for 99% of human history, we had about a quarter of a horsepower per person. The strength of your left hand and right hand, and that's it, folks. That was the energy output for most of human civilization, about a quarter of a horsepower. Then when we domesticated horses about 10,000 years ago, we went from a quarter of a horsepower to 
one horsepower, and that began what is called civilization. Cities, armies, empires began to be formed. And then just 300 years ago, we discovered the steam engine. And as a consequence, we went from one horsepower to maybe 10 horsepower in a buggy, in a locomotive. Now, of course, you have access to thousands of horsepower. And in fact, we're going to use that energy to rocket into outer space. So you see that the progress of civilization can be mapped by the progress in energy harnessing, that we've been able to harness thousands of horsepowers for one astronaut, while before it was only the strength of your left hand and your right hand. Now, you mentioned energy sources of the future. Solar is one, but there's another one I think that is even more important, and that's fusion power. Yeah. Now, fusion power is still a few decades away, but fusion power is the power of the universe. Wow. It's what makes the sun shine. It's what makes the stars twinkle. And we're going to be able to, I think, in a few decades, harness that fusion power on the planet Earth to give us unlimited amounts of energy from seawater. Seawater is the basic fuel for fusion plants. And we have one in France. It's called the ITER fusion reactor in Kardash, France, built by the European Union with the help of the United States and Russia and Japan. And we hope to get fusion off the ground in the coming decades. Now, fusion power is basically what the sun is creating. So if we can replicate fusion power on Earth, are we already a type two civilization? Uh, no. First of all, you have to become planetary, meaning that you absorb all the energy that comes from the sun. Now, Carl Sagan did a more precise analysis of this Kardashev scale. I said that we are type zero. We get our energy from burning coal and burning oil. And we're about 100 years from being type one. About the year 2100 will be become type one. Carl Sagan refined that calculation and said that we're actually about 0.7. So right now we are just several decades away from becoming a truly planetary civilization that is type one. But to become type two, that is to join the Federation of Planets, that's still centuries to millennia away. Now, to get to type one, what does it take? Does the, does the world have to come together as one and have like a federation? Like, how do we get to type one? Well, some people think, do you, have to be, have, do you have to have a world government? And no, I'm a physicist. We're not talking politics. We're talking about energy production. And you realize that, yes, we're producing lots of energy on the planet Earth, but still only a fraction of the energy that comes from the sun. So we are still 100 years or so away from just becoming a type one civilization. But you see, we are witnessing the birth pangs of the birth of a type one civilization. This is the greatest transition in human history. Wow. The transition from type zero, our present day civilization, to type one at around the year 2100, when we become a planetary civilization and harness truly planetary power. Not just fission power or oil, but fusion, solar, hydrogen, the whole works. That's what we become type one. Well, just so we book you in it far enough in advance, <laughs> I'd just like you to put in your calendar that when that happens, we'd like to have you back on the show. Because ideally, you, you and I would still be alive, Peter. We'd still be doing what if discussed. But uh, like right now, I would say let's just put a pin in that for now. 
Let's say we jump in the time machine and go right there, the what-if time machine. Peter, start it up. Yes, we haven't used it in a while. So let's say all the theoreticals are behind us. We are now at that point where we are a type two civilization. What are some of the kind of cool things that people would be sort of fascinated by that a type two civilization as Earth would be able to do, whether it's controlling the weather, the atmosphere, uh, you know, blowing asteroids out of the sky. Like, what are some of the things that we should be able to expect uh, as a type two civilization? Well, remember, now we're talking about centuries to maybe a thousand years into the future. Well, we'll have pretty much colonized the entire solar system out to Pluto and maybe out to the nearby stars. Uh, we're going to build the first starship, perhaps within 100, 200 years. NASA already has the 100-year star, starship program looking at potential propulsion systems for a starship. Uh, for example, antimatter engines, uh, fusion engines, um, even ramjet fusion engines. These are all possible engines for starships. Now, we're not talking warp drive. To get warp drive, you'd have to be type 3. But by the time you're type uh, 1 and aspiring toward type 2, this means building the first starships. So we're going to go far beyond the solar system and reach out to the nearby stars. There's even a program called the Breakthrough Starshot Program. Uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, the, my late colleague, was a member of that program. And he believed that, yes, we should build the first starship. Not in a few hundred years, but in this century, just in this century, build the first starship. Well, uh, one of the great things about having you is that regardless of where we're at, individually or collectively, I'm always optimistic and excited after I, I speak to Michio Kaku because you see the future in such a way that is, uh, especially in these times, uh, encouraging and exciting and, yeah. and, and wow. gives us a reason to sort of, you know, look forward beyond our sort of day-to-day -day problems and be excited about it's the future. In, it's season. interesting because we talked about, you know, Homo sapiens being around for 200,000 years. Yes. And Professor Kaku saying, you know, all you had for power was, you know, <laughs> half a horsepower. Yes. And now we're 100 years away, probably. Of, yes. Of and I mean, 100 years away, we couldn't fly. Or, or sorry, 100, years. you know, a little over 100 years ago, we couldn't fly. So and then, you know, 50 years later, 60 years later, we're sending people to the moon. So Incredible. as as you are always adept at doing, you get us sort of steered in the right direction. We're going to have uh, Professor Kaku on later. If you want to listen to this full in-depth interview beyond our conversation that we just had, click on the link below because a special treat, we are going to be breaking down uh, your most recent New York Times bestseller, The Future of Humanity. I don't think it's overstating it to say that this is one of those times where you want to be thinking about the future of humanity, but especially oh the insights and the visionary uh, perspectives that you have in the book. Give us a little idea of what we're going to be hearing about uh, and what people can expect to find in the book, The Future of Humanity. Well, you know, the, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. They that's did not. why they're not here today. <laughs> there are no dinosaurs joining us for this interview today because they got wiped out. They were clueless. They didn't know what hit them. Well, we do have a space program, and it's inevitable that we're going to have crises. For example, volcanic eruptions, meteor impacts, pandemics. We know they're going to be crises of the future, and we need an insurance policy. 
an insurance policy to make sure that humanity survives no matter what catastrophes uh, hit the planet Earth. And the main stumbling block preventing that was a four-letter dirty word, cost. It cost $10,000 to put a pound of anything into orbit around the planet Earth. That's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs just to put you in orbit around the planet Earth. Well, now prices are dropping. Because Elon Musk and others are perfecting the reusable rocket, because of competition, because of private-public collaboration, the price of space travel is dropping like a rock. This means that in the future, mom and dad may be able to go to outer space. And I would even predict that our grandkids may have the option of honeymooning on the moon. Cool. Not the dark side of the moon, though, because that's not <laughs> a good way to start a relationship. A little more private. Um, so again, more with Dr. Kaku uh, about everything future of humanity. You don't want to miss this. So click on the link below and you're going to get a really in-depth dive into a rabbit hole that's going to cover so many topics about the short, medium, and long-term future of humanity on this planet. Uh, Dr. Kaku talked about insurance policies, Peter. It sounds like the perfect segue to talk about our friends at Policy Genius. Well, Professor Kaku is not necessarily an insurance uh, salesman, um, but... He is uh, a genius. He's possibly not a policy definitely genius. Definitely not a policy genius. Well, Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace, and there comes a time in life when it becomes evident that people need some life insurance. But uh, the world being a little topsy-turvy right now... It certainly is. Uh, pandemic, uh, it's, it's a deadly pandemic, and you might be thinking, okay, well... Can you buy life insurance when there's a deadly pandemic? Because are they is it inflated? Will is they cover me? Yeah, exactly. Well, the short answer is yes. You can buy life insurance during a pandemic, and if you have loved ones, depending on your income, it's a really good idea. Uh, best place to go for the best rate: Policy Genius. Policy Genius, like I say, is an insurance marketplace. They're in contact with the life insurance companies on their platform every day, keeping track of the insurance market so that you don't have to. They've got the expertise to cover you quickly and at the best price. They compare quotes from the top life insurance companies all in one place. Just takes a few minutes to compare quotes from the top insurers. And that saves you a lot of legwork and it saves you a lot of money. Yeah, up to $1,500 or more per year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. So if you're looking to buy life insurance, but you're not sure where to start, head on over to policygenius.com. They'll get you and your family protected and hopefully give you one less thing to worry about. Which, as we acknowledged before, as the sort of segue to the future of humanity with uh, Professor Kaku. Unfortunately, it feels like there's lots of things to worry about, but I suspect you, you have that ability, uh, Professor Kaku, to always focus on the glass being half full. The book, The Future of Humanity, for those people who haven't been able to read it at this point, what do you dive into? What do you cover? And is it overstating it right now to say that we've never been at a bigger inflection point in the history of humanity. Is that fair to say? Yes, well, we're entering a new era in this space program. The first era, well, NASA was great, but NASA became the agency to nowhere. We just spun wheels. We didn't really go anywhere for the last 50 years. And now, because of private-public partnership, reusable rockets, billionaires footing the bill for a lot of these things, we're entering the next golden era of space exploration. So in my book, The Future of Humanity, I take us about a thousand years into the future. 
when we become a mature type one civilization and are on the brink of becoming type two. So I talk about what it would be like when we terraform Mars, when we go beyond the Titan and we build the first starships. And toward the end of the book, I even speculate about what it would be like to become type three. At that point, we have the possibility of maybe, just maybe, time travel, hyperspatial travel, travel through space and time. When we become masters of space and time. So I end the book by talking about the end of the universe, that one day the universe will die. And hopefully by then, we will be able to have enough energy to create a lifeboat a hyperdimensional lifeboat to take us from our dying universe to a young, vibrant universe, and we can mess up that universe as well. Yeah. Wow, to yeah. say uh, visionary might not be a strong <laughs> enough word. Um, so you write about the future a lot in your books. You've done the physics of the future, the future of the mind, and of course, as we mentioned, the future of humanity. You're often referred to as a futurist and one of the best. So I'm assuming... Uh, although grounded in the reality of today, you're optimistic about the future of humanity, maybe short term, maybe not so much in the long term where we all die? <laughs> well, I think the smallest unit of history is the decade. And when you go back in human history, decade by decade by decade, you realize, oh my God, incredible technological, social, historical changes every decade. But we are humans. We divide things up week by week, and therefore we get frustrated, depressed, pessimistic, whatever. But look at history decade by decade. Realize that just a few hundred years ago, Isaac Newton worked out the laws of mechanics for the first time in human history. All of a sudden, we understood why things move, how planets move. We begin to understand the motion of the universe. And then just within the last century, we worked out the quantum theory which gives us transistorized computers, which gives us the laser beam, which gives us all the wonders of modern technology, all within one human lifespan, the past hundred years. And so you realize the enormous breakthroughs we've made, and this is just the beginning. Hold on to your hats. This is just the beginning, as I talk in my book about quantum computers, about matter, antimatter engines, about ramjet fusion engines that run forever, this is just the beginning of the next era. Wow. Yeah, here at What If, you know, we've gone down a lot of those same rabbit holes uh, in, our, in our videos. And our viewers and our listeners, they, they never seem to tire of the many hypotheticals about our species and our universe. I'm curious, though, as you, as you speak, uh, it's easy to feel these days that we know a lot. Um, but how much would you say we know relative to what there is to be known in the future? Well, 100 years ago, they wanted to close down the patent office because they thought that everything that yeah. Yeah. was to be discovered was discovered. Wow. Then, of course, we discovered relativity and the quantum theory and all hell broke loose. But now we have a pretty good understanding of the quantum theory and relativity. And so we have four fundamental forces that rule the universe. Gravity, electricity, magnetism and the two nuclear forces, the weak and the strong, four forces. And we have a good handle on all four of them. We know all the laws of physics down to a fraction of the size of a proton out to the edge of the universe itself. Now, beyond them, we're, we don't know. That's why we have to go to something called string theory, 
which is what I do for a living. That's my day job, working on string theory. So string theory takes us beneath the size of a proton and far beyond the edges of the known universe, where we might have wormholes, hyperspace, higher dimensions, and of course, to understand the multiverse itself. So we have a pretty good understanding of physics from the inside of a proton all the way out to the expanding universe. That's why I can be relatively confident that my predictions are correct. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's wild stuff, especially as we kind of sit here today, but it's it's not, it's not beyond the grasp because like you said, the science is already there. Um, your book talks about you know, sort of a lot, like Peter said, a lot of the greatest hits from even what if terraforming planets, interstellar, interstellar Dyson travel, sphere. Dyson fears, those types of things. It also talks about immortality. And I, I, I remember Aubrey de Grey, the sort of, he's a renowned ageologist, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah. He's fond of saying that the first person that will live to be a thousand is alive right now. Is that correct? And is it me? I think it's possible. Uh, you see, there's no law of physics that says that we have to die. I mean, why do we die anyway? We die because of the buildup of error. That's called death. Error builds up in our DNA, builds up in our cells. Cells become sluggish, and eventually they stop, and that's called death. And so in some sense, we are programmed to die by the second law of thermodynamics. But the second law of thermodynamics has a loophole, a loophole in the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. And that loophole is if you had energy and information from the outside, you can reverse entropy and cheat death. And in some sense, perhaps live forever. And that outside information could be the form of genetic engineering. And so we may be able to control our genes because in some sense, we are programmed to die by the second law of thermodynamics. But we can get around that by adding information and energy from the outside, human intervention. And this is where genetic engineering, CRISPR technology, gene therapy, designer children, this is where the whole floodgates is now opening up right before our eyes. Wow. And it, I mean, probably an extension of that would be transhumanism. Some people see that integration of tech and sort of organic humanity as being inevitable. Uh, and some people are even excited about it. You've talked on our show before about BrainNet and that, that sort of future scenario where the internet is literally part of us. But as you would imagine, and I'm sure you've come across this before, there's some people that hear that and are not as excited and as optimistic as you might be about that. What do you tell somebody who's listening right now or is watching right now to reassure them that that is actually a, a positive progressive development in the human evolutionary story versus something that's, uh, I guess, a little less comforting. Well, I remember years ago, I bought my first answering machine. Remember that? It's a clunky yeah. device. You hook it up to your telephone. Anyway, I bought my first answering machine and the first message the first message I got was from a fellow professor of physics. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, how dare you? How dare you insult me by recording my voice? This is inhuman, it's mechanical. <laughs> it is against human nature. It is against humanity itself. 
getting you an answering machine. <laughs> well, today, of course, how can you live without an answering machine? So when I talk about these technologies, at first, the reaction of many people is, I'm afraid. I'm scared. Oh my God, I don't understand all this stuff. It's way beyond me. I'm, I'm trapped. That's stage one. Stage two is, hey, I can use this. This is rather useful. I can communicate to anyone on the planet or send any document I want, download any movie I want anytime. Stage three is when you say, I knew it all along. I created it. It was my idea. I've been talking about this for years, and it's about time they caught up to my imagination. That's stage three. So where are we now? I think we're perhaps in stage two, when we begin to realize that, hey, this technology is useful. I can use this technology. I can make a business around it. I can educate people. I can disseminate my point of view with this technology. And eventually we'll be in stage three. Ha, I knew it all along because I created it. <laughs> um, Professor, uh, before we let you go, maybe you could just tell us uh, what is the future of humanity and where can people buy your book? Well, you can get it online, but of course you can go to the bookstore and get a copy of the book. And uh, by the way, next year I'll be coming out with another book about what I do for a living, which is string theory, which is the theory of everything. But, you know, go to your neighborhood uh, bookstore if it's open and, or you can download a copy of the book. It's an ebook form. And it was, as I said, a New York Times bestseller. And it's something that I think will open your eyes to the possibility that we are just children exploring the universe for the first time, opening the door just a little bit for the exploration of our backyard, the universe. Easy to forget that, uh, especially when we're sort of navel gazing and believing that evolution was just leading up to this particular time yeah. and forgetting that we're, to your point, we're basically in kindergarten or earlier in terms of how this story is going to play out. Again, I always feel great after talking to you because it does remind me to see that world, that bigger picture. It allows you to be optimistic and encouraged and remember that, yeah, there's... There's been a lot of history before us. And there'll be a lot of history after us. Exactly. So again, we We're thank not. you for that. Uh, and uh, again, if people want to find the book, The Future of Humanity, go to your go to your local bookstore, local bookstore, or order it online. And also, uh, Doctor Kaku, where can they find your radio shows if they want to tune in? Well, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I'm also on Facebook at Michio Kaku. We broke now 4 million. So we have 4 million fans on Facebook now. And we have about a million fans on Twitter. Wow. So Great. any any all things uh, Professor Michio Kaku you will find on uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, or at mkaku.org? Uh, yeah, mkaku.org. Again, great stuff. Thanks as always, and uh, and good luck in the future. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. So yes, I guess we have a lot to look forward to would be the glass half full because we're type zero as, as Professor Kaku talked about, we're hundreds of years away from probably being a type one and thousands of years away from being a type two. This is, and like I mentioned, is this is uh, heartening for me as opposed to disheartening for me in that, like I say, the human 
Homo sapiens have been here for 200,000 years, and all the progress we've made is basically to get to here. And he thinks in 100 years, 200 years, mm -hmm. we could be a type 1 civilization. My gosh, like, how incredible is that progression in 100 years compared to the last 200,000 years? I'd love to see that on the news more. Right. Yeah. Because it's so easy, as he talked about, that we, we get so focused on the present. And, you know, I, if you're a Zen Buddhist, you'd say, well, that's where you want to be. You want to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. But we also get fixated on this particular time as though this is, you know, this is the the future of the species is basically the next. ten. No, it's hundreds of years, thousands of years, regardless of even what happens in the short term. We and the planet are going to be around a long time in some form. And it seems crazy, obviously, as we sit here today, that the energy that we use and harness is still, you know, as he said, like, you know, plants and, and, and fossil fuels when you have decaying this dinosaurs, decaying dinosaurs. And the focus on the sun isn't new. But hearing this, you think, man, if we really focused all our attention on solar power and then, you know, further harnessing that power. So we've got this enormous yellow burning ball of, of fuel that I can feel on my face yes. when I walk down the street. It's burning all day long. Yes. I mean, certainly we, our earth rotates, but why are we not expending all our energy, expending all our energy yes. into capturing the energy from something that's free, something that's incredibly powerful and something that's so close rather than like, you know, bugging around with all this junk <laughs> underneath the, the dirt. We're the only species in the, in the world that actually has the ability to delay its own evolution. <laughs> because we have, yeah. we've known this for 50, 60 years that obviously there's a way to get solar power, uh, you know, make it ubiquitous around the world and essentially make energy as close to free as possible. But our focus hasn't been there. Our focus has been in other ways. And of course, once you have that link to your economy, nobody's in a rush to sort of change the status quo. And that's kind of been the case. I think, though, not only is the, is the will there by most people or many people around the world, I think it's starting to see that the, the, the political currency is there as well. So I think yeah. if we're doing the show in 10 years, it's a different story because I think we're going to be way further down the line on way more solar and well, way and less fossils. Yes. We're 10 years closer to that, you know, 30 years in which we're all going to die. If yes. we don't stop burning fossil fuels and treating the planet like... like we we don't have a great he history as being proactive, but we have a pretty good history as being reactive. Are we the only uh, species that could end our own evolution as well? I would think so, outside of lemmings. I think lemmings right. can just run off cliffs. <laughs> but if, as a whole, I mean, all over the world, they can't coordinate their... their no, their I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, because we're supposed to be the smartest species in the world, yet we have that unique ability, which is you could argue, not smart. So, Pete, I asked you off the top of the show how you were feeling. How are you feeling now? I've, you know what? Like we were saying uh, just at the end of the video portion of the podcast, I feel so optimistic when you listen to Professor Kaku is because everything else we hear in the world is like, oh, we got to stop doing this or the planet's going to die, or we got to stop doing this, the planet's going to die. Eventually, we're going to all have to leave the planet. But he's, he's got all these great ideas. Yeah, maybe they're not great ideas, but they're great explorations of the universe of, you know, what what is possible for humanity mm. instead of what is going to kill us. Which is, uh, you know, it's you could say it's glass half full, glass half empty, but it's more than that. And if you really look back at history, the people who shaped 
the future and the evolution of the species and of, of the planet were visionaries. Yeah. You can't move forward without somebody being able to see. And it's not a talent everybody has. Not everybody can either A, get outside of their own sort of, you know, uh, blinders on and worrying about their day-to-day life to even think about next week, let alone a thousand years from yeah. now, which this guy's... And he's got not just a unique ability to be optimistic... And he's and let's just be clear, he's basing this on science too. So it's not like he's a rose-colored glasses, naive right. guy. This is his job. This is his job, and he sees this as the future of humanity. But also, he's got that unique ability to not just be a visionary, but to see the details, to actually see kind of how it's going to play out. Well, this, if we do this, will lead to a type. Well, once we're a type one civilization, we'll then be able to harness this. Then we'll be able to travel in in whatever. Well, then we'll be able to build yeah. a Dyson sphere. I don't want to make it all about uh, Professor Kaku but we re- we're really missing that in the world Agreed. these days. Like, we're, like he was saying, you know, we're all focused week to week when we should be focused on a decade at a time. But remember back, yeah. I mean, you won't remember it because yeah. it's, you were never around, but I mean, the Greek philosophers and things mm-hmm. like that, they would sit back and, and contemplate mm. um, the world things like that. I feel like we're not contemplating the world, or if we are, there's a very small, minute population. 0.00001 of the population is contemplating, and the rest of us are just doing, grinding out you know, sausages every week. In survival our, in our mode. Jobs. Like we're in this sort of constant survival mode yeah. where fear drives most of our decisions every day. Again, kind of ne- next week, next month. But we don't profile enough big picture thinkers because it requires maybe the context of a conversation like this today to really be able to get the full scope of and context of of that type of forward thinking. But wouldn't it serve us well if we got this on a daily basis where, yes, we got to focus on what's in front of us and we got to be mindful and vigilant about the problems and finding solutions. But let's not get so carried away that things are so dystopian when in fact yeah. there's actually many reasons And it's interesting because the reasons why you should be optimistic about the future is by looking at the past. As he talked about, a hundred years ago, we couldn't do like half of these, like we couldn't fly, we couldn't do whatever. We're half the horsepower. If you brought up what was called lighter than air flight in the late 1800s, you were laughed out of the room as a scientist. It was already proven Mm -hmm. scientifically that it was an impossibility. I think 10 years later, 20 years later, the Wright brothers are flying a plane. So this is one of those things you got to remember that if if we didn't think we could do that and then years later we could, what don't we think we could do in the future that in 100 years we're going to be like, wow, who, who, who knew? We should start treating uh, futurists and people who have great ideas. We should be putting them on a pedestal as they are discovering things rather than after they've discovered. Like you mentioned the Wright brothers, they were, they were laughed at until they created this. Galileo was laughed at until... You know, posthumously. Yes, yes. Yeah. Sorry, we were wrong. Yeah. We're going to issue a stamp in your yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe more Michio Kaku, maybe less uh, Instagram influencers. Oh, my gosh. Please. Let's just, I mean, I can't imagine that that's going to live a thousand years into the future, is it? Let's hope not. When, let's we're, hope. when we're on a Dyson sphere, are we going to be taking Instagram pictures of ourselves? I can't imagine somebody setting up solar panels and a Dyson sphere, Dyson sphere around a planet 
also taking selfies. Yeah, I mean, it would probably be a great selfie, depending it on It would be a great selfie. angle of your camera. Let's get back into uh, some of the things that he was talking about. Um, one thing is, you know, the, or you actually brought it up, was the, the first person who's going to live to a thousand is already alive. And then he went into, you know, there's no law of physics that says the human body has to die. It's an amazing thing because not only is death, quote unquote, solvable, now, again, you'll always be able to get hit by a bus, but the actual breakdown of the cells that causes the, the degeneration and the erosion, essentially, of the physical structure is a solvable problem. It's, it's not something that's solved, but there's certainly people like Kaku and other scientists who are devoting time and energy every day to figuring that out. The, the life expectancy for uh, a male in, in North America and, 100 years ago, 1919, was 42. Today, it's like it's essentially doubled. Yeah, so yeah. what would we expect without solving the cellular breakdown and telomeres and the oxygen in the cells? Well, already we could anticipate living to 140 or 150. And then beyond that, if we solve that other issue, yes, living to be 1,000. But you know what's interesting? Most people, when they hear that, the reaction that I've ever gotten when I bring that up is almost 100% exclusively negative. They wouldn't want to live to a thousand. They're, they're immediately freaked out about it and just go, nah, I'm not interested. It certainly would change the way you do things, I think. If you had a thousand years to live, like, would you still get married at, you know, age 27? Uh, and probably live with somebody for, Or would you, <laughs> would you get married several times? Or, yes. You know, you wouldn't have a job. Nobody has a job for life anymore. But mm -hmm. what kind of job would you have that you could do for... 900 years or 950 years. It completely changes the game. And obviously people will bring up, well, overpopulation and all these other things. So we can't have people living. I think we'd figure it out because to your point, it isn't just about living to be a thousand. It would be about entirely redesigning how we live and why we live. And yeah. that's something that's hard to get our heads around in the short term. But again, with big picture visionaries like Michio Kaku, a lot easier after a conversation like we had today. Imagine just so seeing just the things we've seen in our lifetime, just the invention of, you know, computers and cell phones and uh, all that stuff. Imagine what you would witness over the course of a thousand years. Well, that sounds like a story for another what if. It really does. Uh, we'd like to thank Michio Kaku again for joining us on What If Discussed. If you want more what if, well, you should sign up for the What If Explorers Club newsletter. It's got tons of cool science stuff and tells you more about what's going on behind the scenes here at What If, what Richard and I are doing, who we're talking to next time, what all the videos we're doing lately. Um, to sign up for that, go to whatifshow.com. And hey, do you want to know how to survive a hurricane? You want to know how to survive a bear attack or maybe being the last person on Earth? Well, subscribe to our new channel, How to Survive, on YouTube to find out. That's it for today's show. For Richard Garner, I'm Peter Smeeshan, and we'll see you next time, or you'll listen to us next time, on What If Discussed.